and welcome to this episode of the Art and Design of Sci-Fi and Fantasy, Mystery and Horror. In this episode, I speak with Liz Denlinger, who's a curator of um, a large collection of Shelley documents, um, which means she also studies Frankenstein a lot, most of her career, she says. And uh, she's written a book, she's she's curating a Frankenstein exhibit that's opening in October, and has also written an accompanying book of uh, visuals, Frankenstein visuals, through the through the years, through the centuries, essentially, on Frankenstein. So uh, we talk about all that, a lot of Frankenstein stuff. So thank you and enjoy. I'm speaking with Elizabeth Denlinger, author of It's Alive, A Visual History of Frankenstein. Thank you for speaking with me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. So first, tell me, how did you get into studying? Uh, studying and writing about uh, Frankenstein. I came to study British Romanticism through William Blake, and then I ended up doing uh, writing my doctoral dissertation on Mary Wollstonecraft, who is the mother of Mary Shelley, um, and I now curate a collection at the New York Public Library called Shelley and His Circle in full, the Carl H. Forsheimer collection of Shelley in a circle. Um, and, you know, I joke these days that it should really be Shelley in her circle. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, you know, constant interest from visitors and readers in Frankenstein. And um, when I was given the chance to curate an exhibition on Frankenstein, which is about to open um, in October, uh, I jumped on it. So, um, so I guess it's sort of it's sort of like Madge's answer in the the old Palmolive ads where someone says, you know, she says you're soaking in it um, to the woman who's like softening her fingernails in Palmolive. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I'm soaking in Frankenstein. We're just always in Frankenstein territory here. Mm-hmm. So the New York Public Library system has a, a and an, uh, it sounds like an enormous collection of Shelley related documents? It's um, about 20,000 books and about 15,000 manuscripts. Um, of, so it's not, it's it's Shelley, I mean, it's both of the Shelleys, Mary Shelley and Percy Bysshe Shelley, her husband, mm. um, but it's also their friends and relations and people writing at the same time. So it's pretty, it's pretty broad um, in terms of what it contains, although it's narrow chronologically. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, it's big. The, the, big, the biggest Shelley collection is at Oxford, um, and we were second biggest. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's talk about the book. First, I'd like to mention that, from what I've seen just visually, it has just an awesome collection of images, Frankenstein images and uh, sort of gothic and creepy images. So that's that's pretty cool to start with. Thank you. Um, um, yeah, so tell me about it, how you put it together. Um, well, we wanted to, we really wanted to show the, the art and especially the Gothic art from which, um, Frankenstein sprang, um, and, and, you know, and of which it's a part. Um, so, um, I didn't, I didn't realize there was going to be a, a book, but then it was, I was told, you need to write a book. So, um, so that I did this fast, um. But the, the key to it um, throughout for me was thinking about what does a monster look like? Um, 
because the way that Mary Shelley describes him, which is um, he has yellow eyes and sort of yellow skin and uh, flowing black hair, and he's enormous, he's eight feet tall, um, was not often the way he was shown on stage or on screen. Um, so, so that was sort of the thread, but also I wanted to show, you know, as many pictures as possible of, you know, like we've got, we're showing the nightmare um, in the exhibition, and it's also in the book. It's sort of a, um, you know, a starting point for a lot of Gothic art, and um, it was painted by a Swiss immigrant named Henry Fusilli, um, who was famous for his like, scary, spooky paintings, and the nightmare shows um, a young woman lying on a bed, and this sort of demon is sitting on her. Mm-hmm. And the actual nightmare is, is a horse looking through the window, and it's and it's it, it's simultaneously spooky and funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Mary Shelley would have had a personal connection to that painting because her mother was in love with Henry Fuseli. In fact, he was the first man she loved. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I always wonder what Mary Shelley would have must have thought when she saw it but she almost certainly did. Mm-hmm. So that was the beginning, and then we wanted to go through, you know, the whole history of, you know, the creature as he appeared on stage in the 1820s when he was painted blue and, you know, danced around because the guy who played him was a famous pantomime artist and, and very graceful and athletic mm-hmm. um, to, you know, he, he was green in other productions, um, and then he becomes a sort of less scary sort of gnome or sprite in later illustrations. Mm-hmm. But then when James Whale puts the 1931 movie on the screen, um, you know, Boris Karloff is kind of all anybody thinks of when you think of Frankenstein's monster. Mm-hmm. So we, we, show, we show that, but we also show a, a bunch of other later Frankensteins as well, including comic book um, versions. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's where I was impressed from what I saw just the 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 range the date range uh, which you cover is pretty cool um, I did notice an interesting chapter I think it's a, a romantic childhood or something like that uh-huh. um, I'm, I'm curious um, I don't mind it being included by but I'm curious if you could explain the inclusion of that because that those are very nice. Uh, pictures of children and the pastoral countryside. So, h- how does that fit in? Um, it fit in. I agree with you. It's a little. It's slightly anomalous. And every time I look at the book, I'm like, wait, I forgot we went down the biography route, but we did. I was, you know, basically, I was told you need to tell Mary Shelley's story. So, you know, the romantic childhood is her childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a picture of, you know, her husband Percy Bysshe Shelley when he's a child, and his first poem, and the first book. That she worked on as well, um, but um, but you're you're right. It's a little, it's a slightly you know wonky way to go. Um, I mean, part of you know part of the answer is to, to why this chapter is that you know you want to show your best stuff. So so part of that was saying we have the picture of William Shelley. Let's show it, and we have the picture of Percy Bysshe Shelley as a boy. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a little, um, what's the word, opportunistic, um, possibly. I mean, you could say that. 
Well, it's, I mean, it's a pleasure also, to see you know, it. We also thought it would enrich people's understanding of the, the novel and the, um, you know, the whole thing if they knew what sort of person had created Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. So what sort of, um, you mentioned one piece of art that uh, Mary Shelley would have been exposed to. What other, do you have an idea of what other type of uh, horror or gothic imagery she would have been exposed to prior to writing Frankenstein? Well, she was living at a moment when gothic novels were hugely popular, and um, she almost certainly would have read plenty of those on her own. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, her husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley, wrote to when he was a teenager. Um, and... Um, you know, so we know, so we know that she would have read things like *The Monk* and *The Castle of Otranto* by by Mrs. Radcliffe, um, and we know actually that she had she spent an evening with Byron and um, Matthew Lewis, who wrote *The Monk*, um, in which in which Lewis told them five ghost stories, and she she wrote them all down very carefully in her journal, mm. um, and. She would have known, you know, she also would have known vampire stories, uh, which weren't as popular then as they are now, but they were beginning to be put on stage in one of the, you know, during the famous ghost story contest, um, which Byron proposed to the, to Shelley, both the Shelleys, um, and his doctor, John Polidori in Geneva, mm-hmm. um, Polidori wrote a vampire story that was in fact based on his experience with Byron hmm. but um, so she would have known about vampires as well as ghosts and um, you know the sort of haunted nuns and the um, malicious monks uh, they didn't have zombies or um, werewolves Mm-hmm. Which is odd because they could. There's no reason not to have had werewolves, but they just weren't as uh, significant in popular culture at the time as they became later. Hmm. Interesting. Um, could you uh, discuss a few of the images that you have in the book that uh, maybe you particularly like or you find um, noteworthy for some special reason? Um, sure. I. One of my favorite ones is a picture, I'm trying to turn to it now, mm-hmm. um, a picture by a man named uh, Philippe de Lutherborg, who was a, um, besides being a painter, he was a set designer, and um, he made these fantastic sets with special effects, um, and people loved them, they just loved them. Um, but the painting that we've got shows a young philosopher with long hair and it's um, sort of windswept and he's standing in front of an open grave holding a book in his hand and he's clearly, he has this imploring look on his face. Um, and in fact, it's Tintern Abbey, which we now think of, you know, when you think of Tintern Abbey, you think of Wordsworth's poem. But... Um, uh, but the Deleuzeborg painting, um, it's just, it's just almost campy, but not quite. And, um, I, it has that sort of blue-gray moonlit, uh, 
color scheme that I think of as particularly gothic, like that plus blood red, mm-hmm. um, are, are like the gothic colors, um, to my mind. Um, so yeah, I was really happy we were able to include that. Mm-hmm. We've got this print called, um, un- unexcitingly, Interior of a Gothic Crypt, but it's, um, it shows these tourists visiting the, the tomb of a dead knight, and um, their guide is holding this torch, and there's a, a candelabra over the tomb. And it's made so that when you hold it up to a light, the, the red torch and the red um, candelabra glow because they're, like, coated with wax. Mm. Um, so the light shines through, and they light up, and it's super cool. Yeah. Uh, in this low-tech way. Um, is there a um, a specific vi- uh, with all these images you looked at? Is there a specific visual element or elements that that always pop up in these images? You know, some kind of thread that without it, it wouldn't be a Frankenstein. Apart from Frankenstein actually being in the image, you know, that it would be Frankenstein or it would be Gothic. Because uh, I think for Gothic art, like there's really there's always a relation to death. Um, and with Frankenstein, um, you know, really, there's a, just um, there aren't that many illustrated editions of Frankenstein, um, and the monster is always the most important element of any illustrated edition. Mm-hmm. And I guess the one thing he always always has is bigness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's always big and he's always scary. And he's not, but he's not always ugly. Like, Mary Shelley describes him as, um, you know, inhumanly ugly um, to Victor Frankenstein. But other, you know, artists have drawn him um, in a whole lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. The gnome image, the gnomish image you said of mm-hmm. him? Now, is that does that still have a quality of bigness to it or is are you saying that one actually I take it back that one doesn't it's from a a really cheap um 1860s uh like a um like a a penny a penny dreadful version um like with a penny newspaper where they this guy named Dick was reprinting um famous novels and uh, that were out of copyright. <clears throat> I mean, that wasn't really copyright, but, mm-hmm. you know, novels that he didn't have to pay the author for the rights to. And um, that one really is actually not huge. Mm-hmm. And it's completely unfrightening. <laughs> so. <laughs> it looks like a little, like a brownie, like in the, in the, like the Scottish gnome mm-hmm. sort of figure. Interesting. Um, so I take it back. It's always big, except when it isn't. Well, I don't want to have that one anomaly um, mess up what you see as a as a pretty common um, element in the visualization. Because I wanted to break it down. You know, what do you really need for it to be Frankenstein? Like you say, it's people have different different variations, and and I'm thinking of the the hair. You know, mm-hmm. for some reason, the dark hair is always seems to be there. Um, and it makes me wonder, I always wonder about, you know, good and evil, people show blonde and, and black hair, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, 
I could never imagine a blonde Frankenstein. You know, he wouldn't. He would no longer look evil. I think it has to be dark and you know, mysterious. It's true. Um, although on the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the creature that Frankenfurter makes mm-hmm. is remember he's called he's, that's Rocky. Mm-hmm. And he's like blonde and beautiful, and he looks like Tarzan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but you're right, and I think there's a, you know there's a really um, there's an element of racism to it. Mm-hmm. Um, not, you know, the creature is always a person of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, different illustrators or, you know, different movie directors or, you know, whoever is interpreting the creature visually, you know, they do different things with that. Mm-hmm. But, like, when he was first put on stage, they painted the creature, um, blue, like blue-gray, and he wore um, a blue-gray bodysuit, but they also painted his skin, and he wore a toga, mm-hmm. um, and when Mary Shelley writes him, he's yellow, um, but there's this woman named Elizabeth Young wrote a whole book called Black Frankenstein, mm-hmm. um, about um, how there's this slippage between seeing black men not not women but really black men as monstrous mm-hmm. and therefore the monster as a black man mm-hmm. um, and if you look at the scene in um, the 1930 31 Frankenstein and I think again in the Bride of Frankenstein in 1935 you know when the villagers are chasing the monster it's like a lynch scene mm-hmm. um so, so that's another element, is he's always, you know, in some way not Caucasian. Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed like the bodies, the bodies that were used, it's always like poor, you know, swarthy Mediterranean types, you know, or, you know, someone from the South, not, not, not a Northerner, so to speak, if that makes sense. Well, Mary Kelly doesn't actually say anything about where Victor gets the bodies except that he's in Germany you know he's in Ingolstadt when he makes the creature so presumably the creature has to be German Mm -hmm. um but um but he's often pictured as yeah as um yeah I'm not sure where I got that but I that always that's sort of the sense I always had that he was you know yeah basically just you know a darker person than than your your standard blonde Germanic type. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the it's interesting. I'm just thinking about his hair, and in the in the 1931 movie, he hardly has any. Hmm. Um, well, he's got like bangs, and they're black. Mm-hmm. But it's it, because they made his head like the the makeup artist Jack Pierce imagined his um, head as um, having been opened to let to put the brain in mm-hmm. um, so so it's flat so you know you just don't see much hair mm-hmm. okay um, he's, he's a jar head mm-hmm. let me ask you then about the resources you used to do the research um, obviously you pulled you, where did you find all the images and, and are all the backup the reference documents are they pulled from this um, from the collection that you curate? 
Um, some of them are, but we also traveled a fair amount to, to do research. So we went to um, the Lewis Walpole Library, which is the library of 18th century um, books and prints, and looked through their print collections. Um, we went to the Yale Center for British Art um, and got a bunch of great stuff there. Mm -hmm. um, we went to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and borrowed some fantastic movie posters, um, which are, they're, yeah, they're in the book. Um, where else? We borrowed some stuff from the City Museum of Geneva. Um, we borrowed some things from England. Um, and the Henry Cicely's Nightmare, we, we were borrowed from... Um, the Detroit Institute of Art. Hmm. So, um, so we didn't travel to all of those places, but but you know, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and Yale Center for British Art were sort of the two biggest ones. Hmm. Um, and we also went to you know, New York Public Library has the Library for the Performing Arts, and we got a bunch of stuff from there as well. Hmm. Uh -huh. Did you? When you were doing the research, did you find stuff in your own collection that you curate that maybe you had forgotten about or just didn't realize was there that added to this to this research? I wish I could say yes, but the truth is we show the Frankenstein stuff so often that um, that I was just like, this, 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 and this, they're all going in. Mm -hmm. um, and then we bought some stuff. Like, I actually bought some comic books um, that we didn't have before um, to put in. And my co-curator actually started collecting Frankenstein comic books. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it's not so much that we found stuff we didn't know we had, but we bought new stuff mm -hmm. um, for the occasion. What part of the research was most enjoyable for you? It's, it's, it's really all fun, but, you know, going to other libraries and, and being the researcher instead of the librarian is, it's really fun. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to say, just like looking through catalogs and, you know, writing out slips and having, seeing the stuff when it arrives is, um, it's just really great. Um, I, I, it's like being on a treasure hunt and it's a kind of treasure hunt where you know you're going to find stuff and you do and mm -hmm. um, and then you have to think about how to use it and what it means and how to talk about it and um, you know it really is an extremely rewarding way to spend your time and I'm mm -hmm. grateful to have had the opportunity was there which of the sites that you went to was the most fun to uh, search through or work with um Wow. Kind of a tie, I'd say, between the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and the Lewis Walpole Library, mm -hmm. I think. Or, ah, and the Yale Center for British Art was pretty great, too. Um, well, you don't in have some to ways, <laughs> you, you don't have to choose. You, if you I know. <laughs> those three. Those three. Um which were the main space. And, and I also got to see there was a terrific Frankenstein exhibition in Geneva that I was able to spend some time with. Um, and that was, that was also enormously helpful and mm. pretty great. 
It must be fun to get paid to uh, go to these places and just search for Frankenstein-related stuff. (laughs) It is. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, then the the writing the book part is, like, that is real flogging work. Um, And the way the time scale worked, it ended up, I I was just, like, writing seven days a week last summer. Mm -hmm. Um, But... um, but yeah, no, the actual traveling and the looking at stuff is, um, it is tough. I doubt about it. Was there something you found that was uh, particularly surprising in the research you did? Um, I think I didn't realize quite how deeply Gothic art pervaded England in the early 19th century. It's, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and people just loved spooky stuff just as much as they do now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think I, I don't think I quite appreciated that when I started. Um, and I think I also didn't quite realize how much I, I should say that there's also going to be scientific ex- equipment in the exhibition, and there's there's stuff in the book as well. Um, and I think I didn't realize how much people studied science. I mean, just as a, as a sort of popular pastime, mm-hmm. um, studying science and doing these experiments where you knew exactly what was going to happen, but you still wanted to see, you know, the sparks or the, you know, the bird dying or the bird not dying. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, people from the middle classes upward really did scientific stuff with great interest um, mm-hmm. throughout this period. So you make me think or wonder about um, when you say Gothic was really popular in the early uh, 19th century, what about as compared to the U.S.? And I'm thinking of, you know, stuff like Sleepy Hollow and, you know, of course there's Poe. Um, um, they're a little bit later. I mean, it's absolutely the same um, kind of impulse. They're just a teeny bit later, like, not, like, I'm trying to remember when Washington Irving is writing, but it's the 1820s, 30s, um, um, and Poe is also just a teeny bit later. Um, Were you able to identify, or do you know why, what kicked off British interest in the Gothic? And I'm thinking in terms of some societal effect, not necessarily a particular, um, you know, novel or writing. Or, or mm-hmm. um, in some ways, the thing, one of the things that made it popular was um, the fears aroused by the American and French revolutions. Mm-hmm. Um, the French Revolution, especially. I mean, um, after. 1793 or so Britain was living either in constant fear of French invasion and and you know in a state of war with France until 1815 um, and just the you know the thing about the Gothic is that it lets you deal with death um, in, a, in a, a pretty deep way but also lets you sort of get away from it by the end of the story you know you put down the story and say that's isn't true, it won't ever happen, and I don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But it also lets you wonder, like, okay, well, maybe not Frankenstein, but what about ghosts? Um, and it, this was a period of history um, when mortality was just a bigger part of normal life than it is now. And also, I should say, when grave robbers were, um, you know, there, it, it's a time when there's more study of science, there's more study of um, anatomy by medical students, but the um, provision of bodies was, you know, the, comp the company of surgeons was allowed, I think, like 18 bodies a year mm -hmm. um, until the 17... 60s, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but they needed many more, so there really were grave robbers working all the time, um, you know, stealing newly buried bodies. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, you know, both of those things um, were part of the part of the um, reason for the popularity, I think. Mm -hmm. What was the most difficult thing uh, to research, maybe to come to a conclusion on some question, or maybe you're still grappling with? Um, I think the nature of Frankenstein's monster is um, is still a subject that, you know, it's sort of interesting in a way that I can't ever come to a conclusion about entirely. Um, you know, he's monstrous because he's made from dead bodies, but he's um, fascinating. And in the novel, he's got this incredibly powerful um, moral voice. Mm -hmm. So he argues with Frankenstein about why he should have a mate and why he um, deserves better treatment than he's received. Um, so I... You know, I find him I find him an endlessly interesting character. Mm -hmm. Does would you if people um, considered uh, Frankenstein as sort of a um, an argument of man with God, if he could actually you know debate him about that sort of stuff? People made it into that. I mean, sort of as soon as it went on the stage, it became. I mean, when it went on stage, the title was changed to uh, Presumption, Exclamation Point, or The Fate of Frankenstein. Um, and, you know, the sort of idea that that Frankenstein dares to do what God did, mm. um, which comes up again explicitly in the movie, um, is... Um, I mean, people have used it. It's not really that strong in the novel. I mean, what's interesting about the novel is that, you know, Mary Shelley was raised in this um, not particularly religious household mm -hmm. and um, amongst a lot of free thinkers and Unitarians. Um, and so she's not, and, she, and the guy she marries is explicitly an atheist. Um, so she's not writing Frankenstein in theological terms at all. Mm -hmm. um, but as soon as it goes onto the stage, it, it's made into this sort of, um, you know, idea that it's an argument against God or, or that it's um, somehow an act of impiety mm -hmm. to make the creature. 
And um, I think that's a part of the Frankenstein myth that I'm sort of least interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's Because it's so easy to be pat and be like, oh no, it's bad. Mm-hmm. And Frankenfoods are bad and, you know, messing with genetics is bad. You know, I mean, it's just so wildly oversimplified that mm-hmm. um, I find it frustrating. Hmm. Okay. Was there anything you discovered in your research that emotionally moved you, either positively or negatively? Um, you know, I'm always surprised that I continue to be to be to find it interesting um, in, in a sort of general sense. Um, I've been working with Frankenstein uh, for most of my professional life, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, at the beginning, I was like, oh, another Frankenstein thing. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's still interesting. It's really a very powerful book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I continue to find the creature very moving and, um, you know, a very touching character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you hope, um, apart from just showing images of Frankenstein, what do you hope uh, the book will do for readers? Um, I hope it will make people think about monstrosity and about um, how it is that we think of other people as monstrous, how it is that we think of ourselves as monstrous, um, and how it is that... um, you know, even a, a well-brought-up young woman can imagine monsters. Um, I think there's a sort of uh, endlessly energizing um, tension between thinking about Mary Shelley, um, you know, the well-raised young woman, and and what she thought up. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Can you speak to any different... You, you mentioned that you were sort of instructed to write the book, so you, there wouldn't be any problems getting it published because it was asked for, but did you have any difficulties finishing the book? No, not really. I, I was just under the gun so much that I was like, okay, I have planned out the chapters, I know what I'm going to do. Um, it, it, um, I mean, it was, it was hard work all the way through, but like I had to do it, so, you know, there was sort of no question about it, mm-hmm. um, so it wasn't hard to finish. Um, the hardest part was retelling the story of Mary Shelley's childhood, because I'd done it so many times, mm-hmm. um, but, um, but yeah, no, it was really, it was actually quite, it was fun doing all the stuff that was new to me, it was just really exciting. Mm-hmm. Oh. And the exhibition opens October twelfth, correct? Um, yes. And you were working on that as well while writing the book, or was there some some overlap, or se- was it separate? There, there's a lot of overlap. I mean, almost all of the images that you see in the book are things that are going to be in the exhibition. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, but yeah, so I um, there was it was complete overlap and. Um, Basically, first we planned the exhibition, then I wrote the book while the planning continued, and then I 
and then I wrote the labels for the exhibition, and then, by that point, I was like, yay, I wrote this book, so that means I can use a book for the labels. Mm-hmm. So, um, there's, there's a fair amount of, you know, self-cannibalizing for the, for the labels of the exhibition. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, it was a very, um, you know, they, they fed each other mutually. So where exactly is the exhibition going to be? It's going to be at the Morgan, um, which is the, the Morgan Library and Museum, and that's on in New York, mm-hmm. on Madison, between 36th and 37th. Mm-hmm. How many square feet is the, the exhibit? Oh, my God, I should know the answer to that question. I have no idea. I can tell you it's two galleries. Like, most of their shows are one gallery, and this is two. Mm-hmm. So there's one big room devoted to... Um, to Mary Shelley's childhood and the novel and, you know, sort of the, the earlier part. And the second, the other room is devoted to um, the stage productions and um, the movie productions. Mm. So we've got, like, the, the scariest thing, I have to say, is um, we have the torso model for Robert De Niro's makeup in Kenneth Branagh's film. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's just, terrifying hmm. and gross I mean it's yeah <laughs> um, that's interesting it was an actual model of the monster with you know all these um, sutures and and this absolutely agonized look on his face mm-hmm. um, so yeah so there's lots of just some really wonderful things there's the biggest um Surviving Frankenstein poster from the 1931 show that's a half billboard big. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's never been shown anywhere um, in public before. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. Did you come across many lobby cards for the movies? Um, we, we, we are showing lobby cards. Um, and we didn't come across it huge number, but we, I mean, there were some at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and a private collector has also, who, who collects movie posters and, and movie memorabilia, is also lending some lobby cards. Mm-hmm. I found out recently, I was surprised to learn this, that the images on lobby cards did not get copyright protection, so those, actually, people can use those lobby cards uh-huh. in uh, however they want. I don't think I knew that. Yeah. I spoke to wow. someone else about another book and they found that out and they were happy happy that they didn't need permission for some of those images. I bet. So what's your do you have another writing project coming up? Or what's your next project? Um I'm uh, I may be going on to do um an exhibition either here or at Keith's house in Rome, Keith Shelley House, um, for the 200th anniversary of the death of Shelley, P.B. Shelley, the poet, and mm-hmm. Keith, Don Keith. Mm-hmm. So Keith died in 1821, and Shelley died in 1822. Mm-hmm. Um, so that might be next up. Okay. So where can people find... Um well, do you have a social media presence? Do you write stuff, other stuff on the side, or, or anything like that? Uh, I should, but I don't. <laughs> I mean, I'm on Facebook. Mm. I mean, and it's not in a totally public way, but um, um, but I don't 
I mean, it's, we, there's some blogs on the New York Public Library's website, um, and my colleague is better at blogging than I am, or at you know, churning them out. Mm. And but I mostly don't, mm. alas. Okay. Uh, well, what's the New York Public Library's uh, website so people can check out the exhibition online or um, know, information? Well, it's actually on the the Morgan's website. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just, uh, if you Google It's Alive Morgan, mm-hmm. you will get there very fast. Okay. All right. Um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final words or thoughts? Um, Jail the monster is completely unkillable. Hmm. That's, that's my, one of the things I learned from doing this. Mm-hmm. Despite the best efforts of the lynch mobs. Exactly. <laughs> That's cool. All right. Well, thank you for speaking with me. Oh, well, you're welcome. Thank you for asking me. Thank you for listening. One of the best ways in which you can provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Uh, please give me a good rating if you like this, or uh, feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't, and I'll use that feedback to hopefully make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC, on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC, and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. You can also get more information on my website, chrisalvarez.com. Please remember my name, Chris, does not have an H. So it's C-R-I-S-A-L-V-A-R-E-Z dot com. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.